When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno Larsen from Real Vision, sending to you live Thursday, September 15th, after a uh, tricky week in markets on the back of this shocking inflation report earlier this week. So uh, today we're going to ask the question, why are equities holding up so well given this list of negatives surrounding the outlook for the economy? Uh, and with me today to uh, debate that question, um, I've invited Eric Johnston, the uh, head of equity derivatives at Canda uh, Fitzgerald. Eric, it's really good to see you again. Andreas, great to see you. Glad I can be here. So, uh, Eric, uh, first things first, this question uh, that we're asking today, why are equities holding up so well? We're still um, a pretty decent distance from uh, from the low seen earlier this uh, this early summer. Uh, what's your take on that question? So it's a, it's a great one. Um, I've been very surprised uh, myself that, we, that we've held up this well. So here's what I think is is going on. So, so far during the sell off institutions have brought down their exposure in a pretty significant way. So if you look at CTAs, their net short equities, they've sold a fair amount this year. If you look at mutual funds, they've raised their cash levels in their equity portfolios to some of the highest levels in, in a long time, uh, possibly ever. They're at about 6.1%. And then hedge funds have brought down their gross exposure and have brought down their net exposure to, they're essentially in the one to fifth percentile over the last uh, 10 years. But on the other side of that is the individual investor. And as you remember, during the run-up post-COVID, the individual investor put somewhere around $1.5 to $2 trillion into the equity markets. And what's happened during this sell-off is that essentially none of that has come out yet. Okay, so the individual investor has not been selling equities. Um, it shows up in the data, and I'm sure everyone you know watching this, people they talk to, family members, people have not have not sold. And so I think the next leg of this sell-off is going to come from those 
uh, outflows from funds and the individual investor essentially reducing their exposure. If you look at the individual investor's allocation to equities, it's close to historic highs, um, somewhere north of, of 60%. Um, so there is plenty of room for them to uh, you know, reduce their exposure. And I think they ultimately will, but so far uh, has been, they've been very, uh, very stubborn. And if you think about the amount that they added on the way up, you know, if they were to you know, sell one third, a half of what they bought post COVID, uh, that would be enough to move the market sharply uh, lower. That's a really interesting point, Eric. Uh, there is a big divergence between the positioning among institutions and the positioning among individuals. Uh, but if you're looking for sort of triggers for a sell-off um, among the individual investors, what could be the triggers that you're looking for? So I think uh, there's a couple of things. So one of them is the alternative to equities. So we've had yield suppression now for essentially you know, 12, 13 years, where the you know, individual out there has been looking at an alternative to equities that's yielding you know, anywhere from zero to a couple percent over the last 12, 13 years. And the recent move that we've seen in interest rates has been you know, parabolic, right? And, and it's happened, and we can talk more about this related to the markets, but it's happened in a very short period of time. And so we're going to look up in three or four months and money market funds are going to be yielding 4%. If someone said we were going to see a 4% money market yield, yield a year ago, people would have thought you're crazy. And so that takes time for people to acknowledge that rates are higher and that they're going to be higher for longer and they can actually get some yield. So I think what will be the catalyst for people selling equities and moving some into money market funds is gonna be people, number one, sort of understanding and seeing these yields in very short-term paper. And then number two is, I think losses. I think that as some of the larger cap names um, you know, come into play, um, where they might you know, miss on earnings or, or what have you, that, lower prices, I think, and lower mo and uh, negative momentum is what's going to cause the selling because the individual investor has seen over the last 12 years, every dip is bought, just be patient, stocks will go higher. And at some point, as this sell-off continues and as it drags on, I think that patience will, will go down. The one other important point I would say is that if you look at some of the data that I think is really important, in the second quarter, there was about $300 billion that came out of deposits at, uh, from checking accounts at banks. And you know, in addition to that, you've seen, this, um, you've seen credit usage surge over the last six months. And so what that tells you is, is that the consumer is starting to dip into different pockets. They're dipping, dipping to their, dep their deposits at checking accounts. They're increasing their balances on their credit card. The next thing that could come is I need to withdraw some money from my stock account to fund my lifestyle with this 10% uh, inflation environment. 
if if we look at a comparison between equities and uh, interest rates on uh, on short papers um one of the ways that you can do that is is via the earnings yield on equities uh, relative to the interest gained on um for example short term treasuries if you look at that ratio between the earnings yield in in equity space and the uh, yield on on papers um what's your take on on um, sort of the ratio between the two in a historical context so if you if you look over the last 12 years since the financial crisis and this new regime that we've that we've been in uh, the equity risk premium essentially the inverse of the pe so the earnings yield minus the 10-year yield uh, if you look at that that uh, ratio that index what you'll see is that it's showing that the equity risk premium is actually at a 12-year low so at a time when I think we would all agree that um, you know the risks around equities are extremely high right now, right? We have a Fed that's doing an experiment here that we've never seen before, going from the most accommodative Fed policy ever to the most restrictive Fed policy in the last 20 years, and it's all happening in a year. So the risks including quantitative tightening, et cetera. So the risks right now are extremely high, yet the equity risk premium is at a 12-year low. So to me, that is going to correct itself. Um, to the first question you asked, I'm surprised it hasn't so far, but feel confident that, that it will. Uh, Eric, if we look at sort of implied levels, for example, in the S&P 500, that would allow the uh, implied earnings yield uh, on equities to sort of... Um, rise to levels that could accommodate new buying of, of equities. How low do we need to go in the S&P 500 to really accommodate new buying when we look at it from an earnings yield perspective? So right now, the, the equity risk premium is at about 2.4% looking on forward earnings and assuming the estimates are correct that we see in print, which I don't think they are, but let's assume that they are. Um, and so in nine of the last 11 years, the equity risk premium has hit 4%, has gone up to at least 4% in nine of the last 11 years. And so if you were to get to a 4% equity risk premium, you would be talking about a S&P in the low 3000s. And if the earnings are not accurate, um, then you could be talking about lower. Um, if, if earnings estimates are too high, which I think they are, but um, earnings have certainly proved resilient you know, thus far. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, let's talk about earnings because I know you have a uh, really interesting point uh, in terms of earnings relative to inflation in a highly inflationary environments. And you have a couple of charts that you can put up on the screen um, in relation to that exact point back from the 70s and the early 80s. Uh, what do you make of earnings in this highly inflationary environment right now? Yeah, so you know, I think it's when people talk about that inflation has peaked and that it's going to come down. Um, that's something that I agree with, and I and I think is going to happen. I think it's going to be much more stubborn 
than people think. And I also think it's going to, it's going to come down, not because of natural forces, but because of what the Fed uh, is doing currently. And so, you know, when, when you look at, um, you know, earnings, earnings were helped by inflation. Earnings were helped by the supply chain issues that everyone was talking about. And so when people say inflation is going to come down, it seems like that's only the conversation goes to, and hence the Fed is going to can stop at four or four and a half percent. But the part that's missing in that is that corporate earnings, just like they benefited from inflation on the upside, they are going to get hurt when inflation comes down. So we looked at all the times in history in the last 60, 70 years, when we've had these big spikes in inflation, we took a snapshot of the point where inflation peaked over the course of the next one to two years. And what happened to earnings as inflation numbers came down? And that's the chart that you see on your screen. And that's a snapshot of all those different times. And what you'll see is in each of those cases, earnings came down. And the question is, why would that happen? Well, wages, employment costs are a very high percent of one's operating expenses. Those also tend to be much stickier and tend to lag um, other the pricing of your goods and services. And so on the way up, that lag helped. And then you can think about it in an environment where demand starts to degrade, which is what the Fed is trying, attempting to uh, force to happen, then the price of your goods can come down a lot uh, more sharply than your employment costs. So um, it's very easy to raise someone's wage. It's very difficult to cut someone's wage. Uh, and then as far as cutting the number of people that work for you, um, you know, there's been a mismatch in the labor force. And so companies can be much more hesitant to cut labor. And so this is what's going to cause, in our view, uh, some margin contraction and an ultimately an earnings hit. Speaking to this point of uh, sticky inflation via wages, um, it's obviously fairly easy to get inflation from 10% year over year to say 6% or at least manageable, but it's probably trickier to get inflation from say 6% back to 2%, the ultimate target for the Federal Reserve. So speaking to this point of sticky inflation, um, do you think the Fed will actually try and bring equity prices down to get um, the next leg lower in, um, in inflation done? I do. I mean, I think that inflation now, you know, people talk about the word entrenched. Um, it's been going on for, you know, somewhere high inflation for somewhere around a year and a half. And uh, there's no end, you know, in sight. So it is becoming entrenched. It is broadening out, right? Initially, it was supply chain. It was oil. Oil's now back to the high 80s. Supply chain has, uh, you know, mostly rectified itself. And yet we still have an inflation issue putting up a 0.6% month over month core number or 7.2% a year and a half later. So it is becoming, it is becoming entrenched. And so 
in order to get inflation down, it doesn't magically come down on its own when it's this high for this long. So if you have a unemployment rate at 3.8%, an S&P at you know, 3,900, 4,000, um, that's just not, and you have a soft landing, that's just not gonna get inflation down. You, you have to get asset prices lower, you have to get wealth lower, unemployment up. And as people have fewer assets, less wage growth, and more people are unemployed, um, then demand to pay those prices goes down. And the supply of goods becomes more competitive. And that's how um, there will be a you know, shakeup in the economy to get prices to move lower and stay lower, which is the key. Um, and so the Fed has a lot of work to do because they, we entered this with the economy in very strong sh- shape. The labor force, um, you know, supply and demand completely out of balance. So that's going to take time. You know, we saw today the settlement with the uh, labor union related to rails, mm. a 24% increase in wages. Um, it's still going on. Today, the Boeing CEO said we're going to have inflation with us for the next five years. Um, and so the whole idea is that it's going to be much more challenging to get it down to the 2% area that I think the market is um, you know, giving credit for. A piece of anecdotal evidence uh, in relation to this debate, uh, Eric, from my side, uh, I think we can bring up the tweet of the day um, in in relation to that. Uh, I'm personally seeing more and more signs uh, that inflation is also becoming sort of self-fulfilling in in Europe. Uh, I'm contracting within uh, private equity uh, in the real estate sector in in Europe. And right now we see uh, rental growth as a lagged consequence of the uh, increasing prices in right about every corner of the of the economy. And the housing cost is one of the uh, lacking components in the CPI index. We also saw that in the, this week's CPI report uh, in the US with uh, a month on month increase in the shelter cost of, uh, was it uh, just south of 0.8% um, uh, month on month. So that's basically a crazy number if you analyze it. Uh, but uh, that leads me to um, to the housing market, Eric, because, I mean, we've been talking about it uh, for quite a while. We've had an, another terrible uh, monthly uh, print out of the Canadian housing market today. But I still think that we uh, sort of lack the final evidence that the U.S. housing market is rolling over. What's your assessment of of the housing market right now? So I think it's uh, you know similar to the labor market. There was a you know mismatch post COVID, um, you know a shift going on in how people live their lives, remote work, and everything that we know that that changed post COVID. So you know there was a imbalance, but the imbalance I think is quickly coming into balance, and there will be you know a, a, I think prices will begin to move lower. Um, you know, the sharp rise in mortgage rates, clearly a, a headwind, um, you know, the wealth effect outside of one's home is, is clearly getting hit based on, uh, you know, bonds and stocks getting hit uh, simultaneously. And I think also there is going to be a slow, from here, a slow, you know, back to work and less, back to the office and less lenient policy. 
Um, I'm not saying, you know, we're going anywhere close to what it was pre-COVID, but we're more and more, I think that's the direction we're going. And, and you know, the opposite was what would help the housing market to begin with. So, um, you know, I think for all those factors, we are at the beginning of, uh, of the weakening of the housing market. Um, you know, I think it's going on as we speak. And we know that housing is a slower moving asset you know, price than, than equities. Uh, but I think it will head in, in the lower direction. I wanted to play a uh, soundbite for you as well, Eric, today. And it's uh, from a debate between uh, Ash Bennington and uh, Jason Trinard on um, this higher for longer uh, inflation narrative. So let's uh, listen to this soundbite and uh, get back to the discussion on inflation and housing. So, Jason, what are those structural issues that you guys see uh, in terms of keeping inflation higher for longer? And how significant a threat do you think those structural issues are? Well, I would say, Ash, I, I, um, I think um, they're a threat. Uh, I, I don't think they're, uh, they're insurmountable threats, but they are things that are likely to keep um, inflation readings higher for longer than people perhaps are expecting. There's three in particular that I would focus on. The first would be wages, uh, and as you may know, there, there are about twice as many job openings as there are people that are actively looking for work that don't have a job. And so particularly on the, I would say, entry-level service-oriented jobs, there's a lot of pressure on wages because there, there's really only one way to solve that equation, and that's through increasing price, uh, increasing the price of labor. So to me, that's structural. Um, secondly, uh, I think the housing market, while it's it's weakening a bit, if you can believe it, house prices in the U.S. are up close to 20 percent year over year. Uh, that's very significant because housing prices tend to leave rents uh, and homeowners equivalent rent is a very big part of the CPI, about 25 percent of the CPI. And so right now, um, the, I, I think there's going to continue to be upward pressure on, on rents. And then the third issue that's structural, it, it seems to me. Um, and I don't want to offend anyone's politics here, but I, I do think that the West's environmental policies are keeping uh, a price of fossil fuels higher longer than the, they ought to be, uh, given the fact that we have a war and there are other geopolitical uh, considerations uh, at play. But that's a decision that, that the West politicians have made. I, I think it's a very risky one uh, politically, personally. Uh, but um, those three things are not easily fixed and, and I think are going to keep uh, uh, inflation a little bit higher longer than people think. The entire interview with Jason Turner is uh, already available at the Real Vision platform for subscribers today. Back to you, Eric. Um, if we take Jason's words for granted that we will be faced with an inflation pressure uh, higher than what we've been used to over the past couple of decades for a prolonged period now. Uh, is there any way to sort of position for that in equity space outside of being outright short on index levels? Yes. So I think one you know interesting uh, sector that has clearly done you know very well so far this year is, is energy. Um, but I think it is something that is going to continue for, for a few different reasons. Um, so the first is that we're going to have a situation where the supply dynamic is going to change over the next you know, month and a half with the SPR release um, you know, coming to an end. And simultaneous with that, we are going to sometime in the next 
likely sometime within the next six months, you're probably going to see an easing of the zero COVID policy out of China, which is going to, um, you know, sharply increase the demand um, from from their perspective. Um, in concert with that, you have you know less capital spending that's going on, and that's part of this overall, you know, inflation for longer story is that as you know ESG becomes much more uh, relevant by the day um, and the decarbonization you know spending and and you know views come you know move forward then you're going to have less capital spending on drilling and so you have that secular tailwind that's going to be you know behind you so I think oil does does very well. Um, we know the gas situation um, where you know there there should remain high demand for uh, U.S. natural gas, and in a world where you know it's very difficult to find companies that actually have fundamental momentum, um, good balance sheets, dividends, capital return stories, and have you know, very good secular tailwinds, it's very hard to find. And energy is something that I think will will do very well. Um, I would add on to that, that I think healthcare does well. And I think healthcare, um, you know, can do well just because it is less cyclical, um, has, you know, has capital uh, return in, in parts of the, you know, non-biotech uh, market. Um, and will be, I think it'll be a place where people want to move dollars um, into as a way to be in a less cyclical uh, group and also get some yield while they're there. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, speaking to this point of the zero COVID policy in, uh, in China, um, we've had a couple of questions uh, from the audience already surrounding the move that we've seen in the US dollar versus the Chinese yuan. Uh, I can add that it's fairly clear from the daily fixings being set by the People's Bank of China that they're trying to um, defend the yuan against weakening too fast right now. But is this yuan weakening on your radar in relation to the zero COVID story, um, Eric? So it's on my radar. I would say that it is much less so on the radar of equity investors. Mm. Um, you know, clearly, clearly the macro world is focused on it, but I would say equity investors are much less focused on it. And you know, I think it. I think it should be. I think one of the things that that that's going on really across all so many different asset classes that you're seeing these very large moves, whether it's the rate market, the FX market, um, you know, today gold was breaking down. And when you get these types of moves, whether it be in the two-year yield, right, when you look at a chart of that and it has absolutely surged, these things typically happen, typically something breaks, 
um, in whether it breaks in, um, you know, people's positioning or it breaks a economy in the, in the, in the circumstance of rates. Um, and it tells you that there's something going on under the cover that you should be concerned about. And that risk levels, I think right now are at some of the most elevated levels that I've seen in a, uh, in a long time. I can add that it's typically not a good signal when uh, the yuan is weakening fast. It's it's probably the signal that uh, a Chinese capital is is, is fleeing China. Uh, so quite uh, the thing to worry about, in uh, in my opinion, Eric. We have a couple of questions in in relation to derivatives because um, you're obviously also a derivatives expert, yes. and we have a question from Bo in relation to the high volume of uh, of options. Uh, he's asking you whether um, this high volume of options is impeding price discovery and skewing prices, and whether the market has sort sort of turned into a derivative of the derivatives. What do you make of that tricky question? So there's been, so the options market has been, you know, used more and more over the last couple of years by the, you know, individual investor. And at times they've been able to move individual stocks based on very heavy um, option activity, typically with a duration of a day or a week. Um, and they're able to, as a result, you know, move many, move many stocks. Um, I think if we look at it on a broader, uh, perspective and, you know, there is clearly an increased use of options. Um, one of the things that we're looking at right now is that dealer gamma activity right now is, uh, or gamma levels right now are very short. And that's one of the things that's causing the exacerbated intraday moves that we're seeing. So if you look at the S&P futures the last 48 hours, um, the intraday moves have been violent. And the re one of the big reasons for that is that the active managers are fairly quiet, much they're kind of watching, and it's really being dictated by uh, gamma hedging that's going on from a very large short gamma uh, position. Um, I would also say that um, if you, it's interesting, if you look at uh, SKU in the S&P 500, um, it's really quite flat and, you know, there's not, I would say there's a little bit of complacency around the potential downside in the market, uh, meaning that there are, there's not as much demand for hedging for a large downside move in the S&P 500, which is one of the things that's keeping uh, the skew fairly flat relative to the, you know, at the money um, or, or near the money. Interesting uh, observation. Uh, the final thing I, I wanted to debate with you, Eric, is whether you have any strong views in terms of sort of regional performance when it comes to geography. Um, we obviously have a uh, critical situation ongoing in Europe in relation to energy. Um, but are you more or less concerned about European equity markets relative to the uh, U.S. equity market? So it, it's a tough question because mm. I, I would say that I'm, I'm more concerned about the European economy. Mm. However, that's being reflected in the multiples that are being paid in, in Europe um, versus the U.S., so, you know, to give you an example, we talked about the equity risk premium 
being at the at a 12-year low. Um, if you look at the equity risk premium, for example, um, for Japan, that's at a 12-year high. So you know their markets are there. There's a big divergence going on between markets. You know the U.S. market multiple is you know is far greater than you know rest of world, and that spread has been widening. So it makes it tough because um, I think we would you know if we had a rank order um, where we wanted to be if we didn't know multiples. I think that would be a much easier exercise, and, um, and and clearly, you know, the European outlook I think is far worse than it is in the U.S. But when you actually do look at prices and and multiples, it's a lot of that is being uh, reflected, and that's what makes it tough. So, you know, if you ask me right now, you know, what trade would I put on Europe versus U.S.? I wouldn't have a great answer because I think it's a, I think that's a very tough tough spread. Yeah, um, I, I tend to agree. Even though I'm I'm being long uh, U.S. equities versus European equities, but I am probably also pondering whether to close down that spread um, for now uh, yeah. after quite a decent performance this uh, this year. But uh, Eric, it was a, a great uh, pleasure uh, talking uh, to you this uh, afternoon again, uh, and I wanted to sort of highlight your key takeaways for the equity risk premium in the U.S. to return to sort of most um, palatable levels uh, in a historical context, we would probably need to see the SPX moving to the um, low 3000s. It is very tricky to say whether um, the European equity market will have an even more sour outlook than the U.S. equity market, uh, but the European economy is certainly in a bad spot. So uh, it's not easy to say whether um, there is any place to hide on the globe from from this list of of negatives in uh, relation to equities. And then the final point is that we should watch the positioning among individual investors because that's essentially the shoe that needs to drop before uh, the next leg lower in equities. Have I gotten this right, Eric? Yes. All good. Thank you so much for joining the uh, Andreas, the thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure, pleasure hosting you. And uh, thank you out there for watching the daily briefing again today. My uh, colleague Maggie Lake will be back with more tomorrow. So see you there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 